we are picking up with verse 15, uh, a, actually a very important passage, verses uh, 15 down through uh, verse 20. And so it, it's a, what many hold to be a poem. And in this poem, you know, the Apostle Paul is describing for us, uh, again, what theologians would call a Christology, a, a doctrine concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to take a look at that this morning just to see what it is that Paul has to say to us and tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and, and the context picks up from where we were last week when it tells us there in uh, verse, well, let's read verse 13, where he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, or the domain of darkness, and transferred us into, now I don't know what your translation says, mine says to, but it's, it's the word into the kingdom of his beloved son. And of course, there is no material kingdom around us that we can visibly see. It's, it's something that has taken place in our hearts and you know, God has moved us to a new realm. And the one who is in dominion over that realm is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are now under him. We're not under the domain of darkness if you're a Christian, a believer. You're under the domain of Christ. And he says that it's in him or in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What a, what a powerful thing. Then Paul goes on to tell us about this one who is now Lord over our lives and who we are to submit to and surrender to. So beginning in verse 15, he tells us there that he is the image of the invisible God. The image. In what sense is Christ the image of God? What, you know, you go back to Genesis chapter 1, and it tells us there that man is made in the image of God. And we understand that to mean that we are his representation. We are here to represent God. It's like we're here on His behalf. God, there are inherent qualities within us that come from God because He made us and created us. But He put us here to be, in a sense, acting on His behalf. Anything we do in life, we need to consider what would God say? What would God do? in this given situation and act accordingly. And that's why we have all the instructions in Scripture about rules or laws or principles that He has given to us to follow that we need to incorporate into our lives. But here He tells us uh, He is the image of the invisible God. Well, there's a couple of ways to look at this matter of image. And one of those is what we just said, representation. He is here. He came to represent God in physical form. But even more than that, uh, even in, in his nature, 
in his being as a person, in his relationship to God. And so, you know, children are frequently said to be, you know, in the image of father or mother or whatever. Or we might say something like he's the spitting image of his father, you know. Uh, they look alike. They have to. My wife's always say, well, you've got somebody's eyes and you've got this part, you know, this, well, from chin down, you know, you look like so-and-so. I said, well, okay, that's what you say. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not really good at that. But to be made in his image, it, it, you know, it's like somebody would make a statue and carve it and make it in the image. It's not the exact same thing, but it's in the image. It's a representation. With the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the exact representation. According to Hebrews chapter 1. In material form, physical form, as a man. You know, and, and, and it tells us that if you look at that verse, you know, he is the image of God. Now that's a verb, and it's a present tense. I mean, I mean it never ends. He's always the image of God. It doesn't change. Then, excuse me, um, the other thing to look at is, and I just quoted hers, alluded to it in Genesis chapter 1, where it says there that man was made in the image of God. There is a difference between us being made in the image of God and him telling us here, Paul telling us he is the image of God. And it continues on. It will not come to an end. Then there is this idea of beyond representation, of manifestation. You know, how he has been manifested or revealed as the image of God. He says he is the image of the invisible God. You know, we cannot, we cannot know the invisible, being finite creatures. God is the infinite one, and we're the finite. So we don't, you know, we don't have the capacity to leap over the wall, wall as it were, into the spiritual realm and relate to God. There is the invisible God, but there's also the visible, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked earlier at several passages in the Old Testament of Christ appearing as a man, visibly, to people like Abraham, people like Samuel, uh, and so on. He made physical appearances, but then there came a time when he was born as a man. He took on himself the nature of man. And that's why we refer to him then in the New Testament you know, as the God-man. He is fully God. He is fully man. In those passages in the Old Testament, he made an appearance as a man. So there is a distinction. So he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Not that he was created first, but he is firstborn in the sense of rank. 
He holds the superior position. He is the firstborn of all creation because he created everything. It was through him. He goes on to tell us uh, what that means. He says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Now, in, in when you this work in my my uh, translation, the ESV, for by him all things. There needs to be an article placed there. For by him the all things. Now that's very awkward for us in English to say something like that. But the point of it is, in Greek text, it tells us that you know with the article that there is nothing made. The totality of everything that was made was made by him. For by him all things were created. Now there's a, a flow to this poem, if you will. And it's when he says, by him all things were created, it's an aorist tense. That speaks of the past. All things were created at a point in time by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to tell us then, he says uh, all things were created through him, and most translations say for him, but several will say to him. And, and I think that's the correct way it ought to be. They were created for him and to him in the sense of what is yet to come in the future. And, it's, and we know about what's coming in the future with our Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes back to take or reclaim this earth because it belongs to him. He has ownership of this earth and he will come back and reclaim it and take it for himself to rule over this present earth that we know. And he tells us there, it was all things in heaven and on earth. And I think, I know that I feel guilty of forgetting about things in heaven that were created by Christ. Paul doesn't want to elaborate on that, and I don't know what all those things are. And he tells us it's the things that heaven on earth, the things that are in the invisible realm that we cannot see, nor pass over to, as well as the things in the physical realm, where we are today, here on this earth. And he goes on to say, the visible and the invisible, whatever they be. Now, visible things, of course, we're well aware of, but it's the invisible that we're left, I don't want to say it that way, we're, we don't know. We don't know what the, all those invisible things, we can't see them, and we can't even pass over to that ground to know exactly what they are. Now, when he goes on to mention here, whether they're thrones, or dominions, or rulers, or authorities, I don't, I don't think that those are you know, four necessarily separate, distinct things. But he's, and I think he's talking, because he made the things in heaven and earth, he's talking here about authorities or rulers in heaven, thrones. And then he's speaking to us here about rulers. And those who are even under them, who occupy, excuse me, occupy positions of authority and rulership, Whatever they be, he says, all of them were created 
through him and to him. Today, we find out these, these things, and Paul talks about this in other passages. They're in a state of rebellion. Man is in a state of rebellion. Those heavenly beings that are over the nations of the earth are in rebellion against the Lord. I'm talking here about what the Bible refers to as the cosmos, the world order, this world system as it is today, is in totally. All you have to do is just look at one one little news item and you can see it immediately. It's all they're all in rebellion against God. Man wants to make the earth his own permanent home, and they're doing everything they possibly can to make it theirs. And as I, I mentioned it to Harris this morning, this this nation, the rigs, the whole world is, is, is rotting from the inside out. Superficial on the outside, it might look pretty good, but on the inside, it's going to pot, as some would say. So when he goes on to say then that and when he says about the rulers or authorities, all things, there you have an article again. The all things. Nothing excluded. Were created. Notice, again, this is, it says were created up, up in verse 16. And here he says were created also. But here it's a present tense. It's not a present tense. I think the better translation is, and, and I, I compared them, there must have been close to a dozen translations that translated it as have been created by him. And that's what the present tense would represent. So you're looking at the future, or excuse me, the past, with the aorist tense, he created all things. Now he's saying all things have been created. In other words, that's the result. It's, it's here. It's present. It's before us right now. I mean, nothing has changed. And he, and he continues on. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Uh, I need to back up here because I was emphasizing uh, where it says... Were, uh, have been created through him and to him is looking forward to the future. So what Paul's emphasizing here then is the past were created, the present have been created, and the purpose of them is to him. In other words, these things that have been created by him in the future will result in what they were created for. And the best word I know to express that is for his glory. He will receive all the honor and all the glory over his creation. It makes you go right back to Philippians chapter 2 where it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. So that's, that will be the ultimate for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and then, I mean, it's just like you throw something in here right in the middle and you 
can't figure out why. And he is the head of the body, the church. And then he goes on and then he says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and so on. And you wonder what in the world is going on? Why did he say that right, right in the middle of this passage? And what is Paul emphasizing here for us? I, I think he's trying to simply tell us that those who those who are up here in, in verse uh, 13 who have been translated or transferred into the kingdom of the Son of His love are now members of a body. They're related to one another. And of them, Christ is the head. He is the head of the body, the church. The body has interlinking members as we're all aware of, bones and sinew and ligaments and all these sort of things that hold the body together. And ideally, what would happen when believers come together and they assemble, there would be a spirit of unity and harmony, not a spirit of whining and complaining and arguing and, you know, trying to one up the other one, whatever the case may be. That's disunity. That goes against Christ. So can you not want to bring that up, did That's that's what Paul is alluding to here. And in that context, then, when believers come together, it's to be reminded that Christ is the head. That's talking about the rank. He is superior over the whole body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You know, that, that I think is very self-explanatory. The firstborn from the dead. Nobody has ever been resurrected from the dead yet, except the Lord Jesus Christ. But as a part of the Christian hope, the believer's hope, resurrection, is right out there before us. I mean, it's one of, it ought to be one of the great things of your hope that you, wait, you, know, that you maintain faith, remain loyal to God for your whole life. And that's the condition in which you die. You know, that's how you're, you know, if you think about it, however, Whatever condition you are in spiritually, when you die, that's how you're going to meet the Lord. <coughs> now that ought to be a motivator to us. That ought to motivate us to want to be faithful right up to the very end. The writer of Hebrews tells us of those who are set forth as an example for us. These all died in faith. You know, the clear implication is you can die out of faith. Now, he didn't name any of those. That wasn't his purpose. He named the ones that died in faith as an example for us to follow. And that's what we need to do. Being first born, born from the dead, he says that in everything he might be preeminent or have the supremacy. Nothing 
could outdo or over-exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of his position as being the firstborn from the dead. You know, when, when you look back at the, even at the Old Testament, you know, we look at the, the, the nation of Israel when they were delivered from bondage in Egypt and God called them his firstborn. You know, Israel's still in the picture. They have not been left behind. God hasn't forgotten about them. And there is a few, I, I hold to it, I believe, and I know most of the people, if not everybody here, holds to that, that there is a future yet for Israel. And so we need to keep them in the forefront. Okay, for in him, verse 19, for in him, that in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, which I think to make that verse stand out and what Paul is telling us, we look at the words to dwell. To dwell is, a, again, an aorist tense. And if you understand the aorist tense, you know, it's, a, it's a, like a snapshot. You know, I think of it as watching a video because, you know, life is going on. And some of these uh, photographers or videographers, you know, sometimes for emphasis, they'll be showing this video, and then all of a sudden, they stop. And right here's something they want you to look at. They want you to pay attention to that. Well, that's, that's in a sense, what he's talking about here. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. That error's tense indicates permanence. It's never going to change. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. It's going to be, not going to be, it is unchanging. And it's going to stay that way. And through him, then, to reconcile. By the way, before I even move on, by the way, I don't know how you can find a, a stronger verse in the whole Bible to set forth the deity of Christ. There might, there might be, depending on how we want to read them, but this is awesome right here to me. When you understand or realize that when this, this whole thing about to dwell talks about permanence, it, it won't change. He will always be identified with us because he took on himself the nature of man. And yet, being born of a woman, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to reside or dwell. Now that, I don't, books have been written about this very thing. It's all, it's like, it's, it's inexpressible to describe what that means. That all, you know, in all the fullness of God dwells in the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he became a man. But it was and through him and to him, he says, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Now that's a fulfillment of his purpose because as we said earlier, the world is in a state of rebellion. Heaven, the heavens, not the entire heavens, but a portion of the heavens, those rulers that are, well, 
thrones, the principalities, the rulers, the authorities are in a state of rebellion. You know, God, God understood at the beginning that this could happen. That's why he created us with a free will. We're not robots. God hasn't programmed us. You know, there are people who actually believe that, that everything that happens in your life has been predetermined. Whatever happens, happens. God designed it for you to be this way. I'm saying that God created us with a free will to choose. And even those beings who reside in heaven, who had the mirror access to God, it blows my mind that they acted the way they did and turned against God. But of course, man did the same thing. And we turned against him. It was through Christ, he says here, that he brought reconciliation. That was his purpose, to reconcile the world to himself even though they're in a state of rebellion and he says in doing that making peace by the blood of his cross that's the foundation that's what brought it about and made it all possible the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and he goes on to tell us then in verse 21 then so he says and as a matter of fact some translations say so and you but it's, and you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind. Now that tells us the condition of this. Doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Is that going to happen? Is it a guarantee? That's what he did for. That was the purpose in reconciling. He says, in order to present you holy and blameless. The question is, is will you do it? Will you present, be presented holy? Well, watch what he says in verse 23. And if, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope or moved away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That is the one that Epaphras preached to the Colossian believers, and they believed it, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. If you indeed, he says, continue in the faith. That's, the, that's our requirement. If we want these things to happen, if we want to be presented to him, holy and blameless, then it demands that we walk in faith. Jeff preached that passage a while back. Walk, 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 walk. That's the representation of our life. How we walk. In obedience or in disobedience. It's how we live and how we or how we have walked. And then ultimately how we die is going to determine just exactly how 
we are presenting to the Lord. Holy and blameless or in disobedience. And we will be held accountable because Paul tells us we're going to stand before his judgment seat. Christ's judgment seat. And there we will be judged according to the quality of our law and how we, how we either stumble, well, or we can use the word here, moved away from the hope of the gospel. You know, people do that regularly. They cling to and embrace the gospel. They even may surrender themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ they may say, well, I'm going to take up this cross and follow him. I'm going to be his disciple. And then they abandon And they, they walk away. And they give up. They lose heart. And their faith is diminished. And, and it, it just dribbles away, as it were. And there's nothing left. And if they die in that condition, if that's what happens, then he's... Then They've lost. Nothing left for them but the one who clings to faith and walks steadfastly, he says, that's the, that's the person, that's the person whom God will honor and whom God will lift up and exalt at his judgment seat. So I hope that through this little poem that or at least what many consider to be a, a poem would inspire you and move you to want to be loyal and obedient. Or as you and I would just say it, and as we try to encourage one another, is just hang in there. When we become, you know, despondent or in despair over things in life that sometimes we have no control over. It could be our, our children, our, our brother-in-law, our neighbors, you know, uh, the death of a loved one, whatever it is. But you don't give up. You just don't quit. So when we come together as a group, as a, an assembly, as the body of Christ, that's what we assemble for. And I, I read I read the list. The way we do it is we worship. As Gary mentions every Sunday. We worship in prayer. We worship in music. We should, by all means, worship in our giving. Remember Paul says, if you don't give grudgingly, worship God in your giving. You worship in fellowship. That's why we have this fellowship time. It's important. And then you worship in the Word. All that we do when we meet together is to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. To exalt His name. And to be helpers to one another. To continue to walk in faith. We're to lift each other up. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we bow with 
trust eternal hearts that we are going to follow you and remain faithful and loyal to our Lord Jesus Christ. To not do as Paul says some do, being moved away from the hope of the gospel. And I pray, Father, that we would be amongst those who cling to hope and that we never give it up, knowing that in the future there are such bright and wonderful things we cannot, we cannot even explain them. Beyond our imagination, the wonders of what awaits those who will be glorified with the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.